Thank you, Nathan. Well, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Nathan said, my name is Reed, and um, I was here, I think it was back in the spring, and uh, I, I've been on staff at Christ Community for over seven years now, and I worked with students primarily uh, for those seven years, but I kind of recently transitioned into a new role at our Leewood campus, uh, helping out with our community groups, uh, a little bit more uh, emphasis and focus with our teaching team, and so it's really an honor to, to be here with you all this morning. So I was actually here just last night officiating a wedding, so I looked a lot prettier than this, so I, I should have actually just stayed in my suit. I really should have. But, uh, but what I wanted to, to share, I, when I was here a few months ago, I mentioned I actually grew up in Olathe, so I'm, I'm an O-Town native, uh, and I grew up just right around the corner from here. And, and I know that not much makes someone sound older than saying the phrase, I remember a time when, but I do remember the time when there was nothing out here. It was just prairie. And, and it's just amazing to see how fast neighborhoods are developed very quickly, much less just in individual homes. And, and I've always been interested in, in architecture and in kind of suburban development. Uh, I actually wanted to be an architect. Uh, if you guys are Seinfeld fans, I was like George Costanza, he, nothing is higher than architect. And I really wanted to be an architect growing up. And, and I'm so fascinated by it. And there are a lot of interesting things about suburban development. And one thing I've noticed is that in the last century or so, there's been a shift in the focus of the outdoor leisure space of homes. If you, you probably notice this, homes that are built before the 1950s have an emphasis on the front porch. These large front porches where you have swings, where people drink sweet tea and stuff like that, that's where people spent most of their time. And there's more visibility with your neighbors. But, but in recent decades, and you're, you're aware of this, the, the shift went from the front porch where there's more visibility, more interaction with neighbors to the backyard with high privacy fences, you know? And, and in addition to that, we, have, we moved from attached or detached garages where you'd pull in your giant Buick, you pull in, then you have to get out, walk to your front door and see your neighbors. Now we have attached garages where you pull in, close the door, you don't have to see anybody if you don't want to. And then you go in your backyard, your eight-foot fences, and no one sees anybody, and it's great. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying that, that attached garages and privacy fences are unweaving the fabric of society. It's not a, you don't need to repent of that. But it, it does point us to the fact that there's been a shift in our culture. And it's a shift that some people have called the, the moving from a we culture to a me culture, where we move from a place of, of community being very important to now the individual is very important. And, and, and we all kind of know this. We've either been perpetrators of an individualistic culture or the victims of it. Uh, and in his book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella, he points this out. He says this. He says, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. He goes on to say that the sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. Now, I think we can all agree with this. We, we see this in our culture in various ways. And it impacts our, our neighborhoods. It even impacts our families. We've gotten to the point where we have less and less value and need for community and even family to some degree. But we would also probably agree that this, this phenomenon has, has crept into our voc vocational spheres as well where we see less and less need and value to work with people. Even when you talk about the idea of teamwork, we kind of cringe, like, oh my gosh, that means that I have to rely on other people and they're not going to do the work as well. Or, oh my gosh, they're going to realize that I'm a terrible employee when we work together. And we just would rather be on our own. 
And what, if, if you've been with us the past few weeks, as Nathan mentioned, we've been in this series called Neighborly Love. And what we've been trying to explore is this idea that the idea of loving our neighbor is probably a bit wider and more robust than what we've come to understand. In the first week, we talked about this idea that, that neighborly love is about building greater compassion and economic capacity. Last week, we looked at this idea that, that neighborly love is, is about being faithful and fruitful, about being productive as God has designed us. And this morning, we're going to shift our focus and see that, that God has designed us to work in a collaborative manner as well as in an interdependent manner. And, and those are bigger words, so I'll just kind of simplify it, that God has designed us to work with and to work for each other. And we're going to see this in our text in Genesis 2. But the, the big idea here is that God has designed us to love our neighbors. And what this means is that to love our neighbors means to love our neighborhood. That it's not just loving individuals, but it is loving our community. And our community is probably more wide than we think. And so what I want us to do is look at Genesis 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And what we're going to see this morning is that God has designed us to work for, to work with, and to work towards something. This is what we're going to explore, just these three basic things. So the first is this, that God has designed us to work with. So if you look at Genesis 2, verse 5, we see this. This is the account of God creating all things, and he pauses to give a specific attention to the creation of humanity. In verse 5 we read, Now no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, one thing I want us to, to see in this text is that, uh, that before sin has entered the world, God has created the world in such a way that, that the original work of man is necessary for the world to advance and to progress. That the world was created good, as God declared it, and it was created to need the work of man. Because it happens, he says, before rain came and before a man came to tend the garden, to tend the world, God created. He made the world to exist and function by the collaborative work with humanity. And this is before sin enters the world. Collaboration is a part of God's design for his creation. This is the idea of God designing our work to be work with one another. Now, now to be clear, this is not an act of divine delegation dumping, like God's like, I don't want to do this stuff, you take care of it, Adam. That's not the way he's working. Instead, what we see is that God wants his world to function in a, co a collaborative manner, that God wants to work with Adam to both create and recreate in this world, and that there is something about work that is to be seen in, as a collaborative initiative that is a good thing. If you look at verse 15, we, we see that, that God not only uh, gives this, this idea of collaboration to be something that takes place between God and man, but between man and man as well. And so what we see in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And what we see in this, this is kind of Adam's job description, so to speak. And in this job description... God gives Adam, there are two words that he uses to describe Adam's job as the worker of the garden. It is the words to work and to keep. Or you could say that, that, that Adam was called to work and to keep the neighborhood. Because really, if you think about it, the, the Garden of Eden is kind of the first neighborhood that exists in the world. And, and neighborhood, we, we tend to think of neighborhood as like a collection of homes. But really, the idea of neighborhood is this idea of a place where people live. 
And so the Garden of Eden is really the first neighborhood, or it's probably better to call it Eden Gardens. That sounds like a neighborhood, actually. Uh, Eden Gardens. Um, But the idea here, going back to Adam's job description, is that Adam was called to work and keep the garden. Or other translations say to cultivate and to take care of it. Now these two words, they have a meaning that is more than just about accomplishing a task. It's more than just a utilitarian activity. There's something deeper in these words that God uses as he sets out Adam's job description. The first word, work, is the the Hebrew word avodah, which really has this idea of 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 religious and spiritual activity. It's the same word used to describe the work of the Levitical priests. It's this idea of, it's the same word that they use in referring to their activities within the tabernacle. And and so that's the idea of work. But then the second word, to care or to cultivate, is the word shamorah. And what this word means, it also has an association, a connection with religious activity. The point being is that these are not just words of work and task and chore, but they are words meant to show us that our work, even before sin enters the world, our work is meant to be seen as worship to God. That there is something about Adam's work in taking care of the garden, that in his work he is protecting the ground, he is producing goods, and he is praising God in all of it. Work is meant to be seen as worship to God. That's the idea as as God is laying out Adam's job description. Now, not only do we see this, this idea of withness, this design of withness between God and, and, and Adam, but we also see it laid out between Adam and all of humanity. Look with me at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, God is making a very important point here. He's showing us that at, at the end of each day of creation, God says, It is good, it is good, it is good. But when we come to the creation of man, God pauses, and it's the first time that he says something is not good. It is not good that man is to be alone. Now, if you've been around church, you've probably heard that before, but I want to be clear that when God says it's not good, he's not pointing out um, a, a perversion or a corruption in his creation. He's pointing out that it is not yet done. It is not complete. If you think of it this way, like I enjoy writing music, playing music, recording music kind of as a creative outlet, and rarely will I let anybody listen to what I've created until it's mostly done, because, not because I'm ashamed of it, like this is embarrassing, but I want to wait until it's to a place that's listenable. In a similar way, God is creating, and he makes man, and he pauses. Some, some commentators refer to this as the divine pause where God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. It is not good for man to be alone. Almost to bring attention to this. Similar to how I, I try to teach my daughters certain things. Um, when I'm trying to show them something, sometimes they're watching me. And when I want them to get something, I'm like, I, I bring their attention to this. Okay, girls, I want you to listen to this here now. Because this is very important. That's exactly what God is doing here by saying, it is not good for man to be alone. The reason being is not just because Man by himself will just do stupid things, uh, which that's probably true. Uh, If you think of Adam being in the garden without Eve, he'd probably do something like this, you know, with no woman in the world. Uh, Or he might do something like this, wrestling with crocodiles. That's also something Adam might do without a woman. Or the last one, this is my favorite, uh, playing with little baby bears. 
you can imagine, if there's no woman in the world, this might happen, actually. But, but the, the point isn't that, that Adam needs a helper because he's an idiot or because he's insufficient or inadequate, but God has created humanity to work in collaboration with one another. Man needed a helper not because he was insufficient, because it's because how God has designed us to live and to function. All of this is to show that God has designed us for the purpose of collaboration, of working with one another. Now this leads us actually to this, this second point, that God has not only designed us to work with one another, but he has designed us to work for one another. And the big word here is this idea of working in, in interdependence, where we see our work as being something that is vital for other people, and other people's work, regardless of what it is, is necessary for us. Now, we're going to look, I want you to go back to verse 5. We see where it says, No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. As I said, God has created the world in such a way, he has set it up so that the progression and development of the world is dependent upon the work of man. And it's not because the world is broken but it's because this is how God functions in and of himself. Just as man was created to be dependent upon God, God has created the world to be dependent upon man in his contribution. God intentionally set up the world in this way to need the work of humanity in order for it to flourish and to progress. Or, or to put it another way, the first neighborhood of Eden Gardens needed the work of its residents to, in order for it to be a vibrant neighborhood. We need the work of one another. And this is how God has set up the world. It is not a reaction to sin and the fall. It is how God has made the world to be. We need each other's work. In, in his book, uh, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller actually points this out. He makes this very great observation. He says, how does God give a city security? Isn't it through lawmakers, police officers, and those working in government and politics? So God cares for our civic needs through the work of others whom he calls to that work. And, and I love that picture. I, I think it just, it broadens our, our vocational imagination, if you will, of seeing people's work not as just something that exists to make a paycheck, but other people's work is something that I need and that you need my work. That, and God has created us in this way to work for and to work with one another. But let me pause for a second because some of us might kind of be listening to this and say, okay, I, I, this sounds great, but it just sounds like biblical rhetoric used to kind of motivate people to make a lot of money and work hard. And, and if that were simply the case, that would be very hollow at best or manipulative at worst, especially if we were talking about working with and working for one another without asking the very important question, to what end? To what end do we work for and with one another? I think, I, I think some of us tend to look at business sometimes like business and, and, and commercial transaction is just a necessary evil. Like that I, oh, well, like I hate the fact that you have something that I need, but I'll, I guess I have to shell out money for it, but I hate that idea, but I guess I have to deal with it. This is the world that we live in. And, and I don't think that that is a very helpful way of looking at business and transaction. I, I don't think it's very helpful, and I don't think it's actually very biblical, I think we need to see that work is created in such a way that creates this web of interdependence where we're not necessarily enslaved to people, 
but dependent upon them in creating a mutual relationship. In, in his great book, uh, Business to the Glory of God, Wayne Grudem has this great observation. He says, by giving us the ability to buy and sell, by giving us the ability to buy and sell, God has given us a wonderful mechanism through which we can do good for each other. We should be thankful for this process every time we buy or sell something. We can honestly see buying and selling as a means of loving our neighbor as ourself. I just think that's a really great way of seeing business transaction. Rather than it being a necessary evil, it is something that God has designed for us to need one another and to celebrate each other's work. Now, that sounds good on, on paper. Like, that, that's a great little quote. We could stitch that on a pillow. It's a long quote, I guess. But, but it sounds great on paper. But, what, I mean, how does this actually flesh out in real life? What does this look like in real life? And I'm glad you asked that question. And I thought we'd take a second to look at a way in which members of Christ's community are seeing this principle lived out in their works. Let's take a look. Uh, what do I do with most of my day? We, uh, I own a, a creative agency. Um, we, we get the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs and people that are starting new venture ideas, uh, consult with them and collaborate with them, and then work with a team of designers and developers to uh, build web apps, iPhone apps, and, and then try to launch new businesses. We wear multiple hats, and so from an owner's perspective, uh, George and I get to work collaboratively on where we're going, where we're going to take this thing. Uh, my name is George Brooks. I've been coming to Christ Community for just shy of 10 years now. My name is Dan Linhart, and my family and I have been coming to Christ Community for just a little over 10 years. As we work together in a collaborative environment, we're going to trust each other to not only own up to the accountability you have in whatever project you're working on, but we're gonna trust each other's specialty as well. There's something amazing to come to our office, and that's why we bring our clients there a lot, is to see programmers, designers, product strategists, business people, project managers all in one room. Um, you come up with a, a wonderful thing, and it's a great solution to that can solve a great problem. So I, I like to use the odd is can will, the kind of four-part gospel. If this was the perfect business, the ought of the business. If this was the perfect business, what would it look like? And the reality is, is there's an is. Um, there's constraints, whether it's budget or time. A bunch of different factors are gonna play into the success of whether or not that business works. And then the can is really, for me in our space, is what can this be? Um, within those constraints, we can do something great, but the best way to do it is to work as close to that ought as we could. And that ought would be really everyone with their different disciplines and their different strengths and gifts coming together for a great result. Work truly is, it's, it's a gift that we've been given to serve others. Um, and I, I love um, in the Old Testament when, when um, God says that I'm blessing you so that uh, you can be a blessing. That's kind of something that's stuck with me. A couple years ago we worked with a, an entrepreneur um, that had an idea and he was a brilliant man and him and his co-founder were really smart guys and we were there to really help provide the, the tool, the technology platform that was going to help their company grow. Um, and again, in entrepreneurship there's always that opportunity that's just not going to work. When it does work, when a new company is formed that is solving a problem that actually does exist in the world, that is 
It's, it's like magic. We were able to kind of help them set up the pedestal to grow their business. And the last time we met up with them, this is about six months ago or so, they had 85 employees, I think, at that particular location. And they had gone global. Well, those are jobs. Those are people now have jobs because of the thing that we helped start. And, and oh, by the way, other businesses are being formed by the money that they're lending. And, and just that's when it gets really exciting is that there was a problem to be solved we were able to be a part of the journey to help solve it. I have a gift, I have a contribution, but it's not the full thing. I, I need to come here and give it to others. And if they're doing the same, that's where truly where we've seen and the clients we worked with and the products we've built, that's truly where the greatness comes from. That's a beautiful picture of, of collaboration. It's exactly what we've been talking about. This idea of, of how God has designed us to work, not just with each other, but for each other. And, and you may have recognized the faces, Dan Linhart and George Brooks, they attend the Olathe campus here, and they're dear friends of mine, and so I can, I can say without exaggeration that, that that truly is their heartbeat, that they see their work as a calling that God has placed on their lives to do good work, to serve the common good of all people to do their work well in such a way that, that it multiplies. As, as George was saying, that I, I love the fact that we created something that, that led to a, a business exploding, creating new jobs and, and money that is now lended for other business endeavors to, to begin. I think we just, at least for me, I know, I don't have that broad imagination to see how my work impacts the lives of people and how your work impacts my life. We need to see this more and more that this is how God has designed us, that work is given to us as a gift. Work is God's gift to the world where, as one author put it, we make ourselves useful to other people and other people make themselves useful to us. Or, or last week, uh, Nathan mentioned that the idea of work, work is this idea of cultivating blessing for others as well as for ourselves. That it is this mutual engage in, engagement and exchange and this is really the, the fundamental reason why the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians 4.28, it's the fundamental reason why he implores the Ephesians to refrain from stealing. He says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why we should work honestly. That's why we should refrain from stealing so that we might have something to contribute, to give to those in need for the common good. This is what neighborly love looks like. This is what it looks like to love our neighbors in a broad sense. But as we know, our neighborhoods don't look like the first neighborhood of Eden Gardens. They look different because they're broken. And it's not just because the neighborhoods are broken, it's because these neighborhoods consist of broken individuals. And, and it doesn't matter how well manicured your lawn is or how great the schools are, we all experience brokenness in some ways. And because of that, we live in and among broken neighborhoods. So we should ask ourselves the question, so what does this look like? How do we love and serve our neighbors? How do we work with and for each other for the common good? And that leads us to this last point, that God has designed us to work towards the common good of all people. Now, while money and, and work are, are good things, they are not the ultimate solution. I, I, I want to make that clear. We're not just saying, like, we're abandoning the gospel and we just need to work really hard and create money. These are important things. They're not everything. 
but we have, just, just try to imagine with me what our neighborhoods would look like if each and every one of us saw our work, whether paid or unpaid, whether in the home or outside the home, if we saw our work as God's calling on our life to be used for the good of all people, what would our world look like if we saw the need that we see in the design that God has made in this world to work with and for each other for the common good? What if our work were not just by us and for us, but with others and for others? I think God delights in work done in this way, not just because it's good and it works well, but because it reflects his nature and his character as a God who in and of himself is a community who is interdependent and who works together for the good of others, depending on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this in the nature of the Trinity. Wayne Grudem, again, I mentioned uh, him, but he has this great line in, in tying our work to the Trinity, and he says this. He says that in our work, or, or he says God has provided the human race with a wonderful encouragement to love our neighbor by pursuing actions that advance not only our own welfare, but also the welfare of others. Even as we pursue our own, as we pursue our own welfare in our work, in our contribution to the world, we are not only benefiting ourselves, but benefiting others. And he goes on, in our work, we manifest the interdependence and interpersonal love among the members of the Trinity. This is not just an economic principle that works and is pragmatic. It is something rooted in the nature of, of God himself. And just as we see how in God's triune community and his communal nature, no person is placed over and above the other. There is this beautiful dance of interdependence where each one is working to glorify the other. In the same way, we should see our work in the same way that, that my work is no more important than yours, that one person has, doesn't have more value than another. We should see our work as being creating a web of interdependence where we truly do need one another. Now, I, I want to pause for a second. I know that what we've been talking about is kind of heady and kind of above us. Like, okay, this is all great and abstract, and, and I'll just say I'm with you here and saying that this stuff is a bit of a stretch for me to think about. And so I, I want to kind of shift gears to, to talk really practically. Okay, what does this mean? We're, we're talking 30,000 foot. I get this idea of working with and for, but what does this mean in my context of work, whether paid or unpaid, in the home, outside the home? And so what I want us to see is that we need to look at, at this idea of work. And I, I want us to, to point out three things just in this last point of how do we see our work with and for one another being worked towards the common good. And I'll just suggest three things. The first is this, that we should seek to create good work. We should seek to create good work. And what I mean by that, and this is, and some of this may be, a, it might have more translation to people whose, whose jobs are, who create um, who ha are compensated for it financially, but these principles can apply to, to stay-at-home spouses, to, to kids in school. So I just want us to see that there are connections here. But this first point of create good work, and what I mean by that is, is create a culture within your place of work, in your place of influence, that, that values doing good work and doing work well. Not just so that you can improve your bottom line, but because there's a value and there's a connection between work well done and the love of our neighbor. Recently, I, I actually got an email from a, a vice president of a company here in Kansas City. I'll, I'll share a little bit more of this story in a second. But he, he was sharing with me his, his deep desire to make clear to his employees the connection between the quality of their work 
and the safety that their products produce. He's like, I just want them to see very clearly that the work they do is directly tied to the safety products that we provide. He said this in an email. He said, safety and quality go hand in hand in our business, and they are top priorities. I emphasize this to all our people at every opportunity I get, that safety and quality are paramount. They go together. So can we create a culture that values excellence, not so that we can just get people to work harder to make us more money, but because there's a direct connection between the quality of our work and how it ends up serving and blessing our neighbors. Another thing that we can do in creating good work is to help others do their work well. By involving ourselves in things like mentoring or tutoring uh, or having internships that aren't just about dumping things you don't want to do on, you know, like uh, uh, unsuspecting college students, you know, but, but that internships should be seen as a way to improve the idea and the quality of work in a person's mind. Or something like the Casey Fellows Program that we've, re- that we've just recently launched. Help others do their work well and creating a culture of excellence for the good of all people. Also, we can, we can work to build more than just financial capital. And th- this might be a little bit more uh, tailored to people who actually are in, in the, the marketplace and, and making a paycheck. But, but the idea is that we shouldn't just look at financial capital as the primary goal of work. Many economists today and, and business strategists have talked about how we need to, yes, build financial capital, but also build things like human capital and social capital and environmental capital. The idea of human capital being that we should take very serious thought into how are we building salaries? How are we taking care of people's benefits? How are we recognizing and celebrating people's work? How are we helping them uh, pursue health and wellness initiatives in work? And this is something I love at Christ Community. Uh, Our our human resources director, Esther Decker, loves uh, promoting this stuff where there's almost this kind of fun competition of how many steps we get in and how many points we're earning. And it's a great thing. How are we building human capital in our places of work or social capital? How are we involving ourselves in the community? How do we see our work impacting our community outside the walls of our places of influence? Or environmental capital, how are we creating awareness that how does our work impact the world itself, the physical world? Are we conscientious about the impacts and ramifications of our work on the physical world? So that's the first. How, how do we see working with and for being working towards the common good, create good work? But secondly, we should also support good work. Beyond what we do, we should support good work of others. Be, and, and this, I think, also means that we should be informed consumers. Know what you're purchasing and where it comes from. And I realize that we can't know everything about everything we purchase, like what was the name of the guy who raised this chicken that I'm about to eat? You know, we don't know all those things, but at least seek to know, okay, are the things that I'm consuming and benefiting from, are they coming to me at the cost of someone's human rights being violated? We should be informed consumers. We should also promote the work of others and start with the people that you work with. Promote their work, celebrate their work. And it may be your own children, it may be your classmates, it may be your coworkers, both above you and below you. How are we promoting the work of others? And also, how are we expressing gratitude? Not just promoting it and bringing attention to it, but how do we express gratitude for the work that other people do? And this is probably, if, if there's one really helpful practical application to take away, it's this. Foster a culture of gratitude. 
And I mentioned that the vice president who, uh, who sent me that email, he works for a company that produces safety products on airplanes. And some of you maybe heard this story. I don't know if, if Pastor Chris Fernhout has mentioned it, but Chris and I were on an airplane last year uh, from New York to Charlotte. And our, our plane lost cabin pressure instantly. And we dropped from 30,000 feet to 10,000 feet like that. And the oxygen mass deployed. And so that's a scary situation. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, I won't eat my peanuts now. And so and I'm, just, I'm sitting next to Chris and we're just like, uh, 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 okay, do I help you or what do we do? You know, so we put them on. And things finally calmed down. It was okay. I survived. Spoiler alert. But, uh, but what we noticed as things calmed down, the oxygen masks were made in Lenexa, Kansas, which was just kind of this funny thing. I made a mental note of that. And, and I remembered... I was like, I should, you know, let these people know how much their work has impacted my life. I totally forgot about it. And actually, in preparing for this sermon and being immersed in this series, God has graced me, I think, with this wider imagination of what people's work does and how it impacts my life. And so I just emailed this company, and I found, I found their website, and I, there was a point of contact on their website, and just said, I just want to thank you for the work you do. I want to thank you for the fact that you have done good work that has arguably saved my life and saved the lives of many people. And thinking I would just get this nice, like, oh, I really appreciate that. Here's a free oxygen mask or something. But um, <laughs> I got a phone call from the vice president thanking me for exp- taking the time to even think about that and to express gratitude for the work they do. And he sent me that email saying, you don't know how much I, I stress this, that the quality of our work truly does lead to the impact of human lives. And then I got a voicemail this morning from a pastor in Kansas City who, uh, who has a member of their church who works for that company who also received my email. Like they forwarded it on to like all these people in the company. And, and, and he just said, I want to thank you, pastor, for seeing that, that lay work, secular work, marketplace work means a great deal to God. And I'm saying this not to toot my own horns, like, aren't I an amazing person for doing that? But more to bring us into a more robust imagination of seeing how each other's work serves us and how our work serves others. So have a high gratitude for people's work. And then lastly, we should create good work, we should support good work, but there's also a sense in which we should repent of bad work. That we should be aware of how our work has impacted the lives of others. G.K. Chesterton, you've probably heard this quote before, he was asked at one point, what is wrong with the world? And he said, his answer was, dear sirs, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. We all are complicit in this brokenness that we experience. And so we should pause and ask ourselves, how, how are the things that I do in my work creating the problems that I see in this world? And so just a few things to think about. We must repent of things like supporting companies that, that knowingly make their profit as a result of human rights violations. That we should allow, we should repent for things like allowing room for white lies that in turn snowball into major financial and societal avalanches. We should repent of perpetuating a work culture of greed that operates primarily or exclusively from a one-sided bottom line of just money. We should repent of remaining silent about or being responsible for unethical or unjust business practices. We should repent of holding to a purely materialistic view of the world. As Brian Fickert pointed out, if you were with us at our Common Good Conference a few weeks back, Brian Fickert said that a materialistic view of the world kills our ability to love and help our neighbor because we think economics is only about money. So in closing, just as we bring this all together, economics is not everything and everything is not economics. 
Yet at the same time, we must not minimize or trivialize the fact that, that those that have great economic capacity have the ability for great good and great evil. And that those without it are very susceptible to a paralyzing life. And we need to think about this as we think about our work. I began this sermon by quoting Robert Bella. You know, he said that we've moved from an individualistic or a communal culture to an individualistic culture. And in his book, his, his remedy, his suggestion for how we reverse this very pernicious and problematic issue is he says this. He says, we need to return to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. Let me say that again. We need to return to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. And I think Bella is spot on here, not because I think that will in turn result in, in good neighborhoods and vibrant work environments, but because it reflects the character and nature of God. The reason we are to work with and for each other towards the common good is because we see that God, in entering into humanity, he came into our neighborhood, so to speak. That he entered into our world, as, as John 1 says, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the message, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus entered our world, entered our neighborhood, so that he might empty himself and take on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be freed and forgiven. It's this reason that we are drawn to work for the good of others, just as we see that the triune God working with and for each other and for our good, as we see that in the gospel, that should instill within us a desire to work for the good of others, and all of this is by grace. What a freeing and empowering thing it is to know that that our standing with God is not based upon how good we are and how productive we are. And when we understand we're freed from that, it frees us to work in a way that, that truly can be a blessing to others. And now we are free to work with and for one another as a response to the God who works with and for us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause just to give you thanks for the fact that you are a God of work and that you have worked to redeem and to restore us. And that, Lord, in your infinite wisdom, you have design, designed us to, to work with you, to partner with you in your work of redeeming and restoring all neighborhoods to be brought back to that first neighborhood. And so, Lord, I ask that you would widen our imagination of our work and the work of others and that we would see that we truly do need to work with one another and for one another, towards the common good of all people, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.